Welcome to the Highway to Well. Today we're talking with David Darris, sports psychologist and fellow member of the Replacements Fan Club. How do we perform at our peak? What can we do to create a mindset for success? What role can we play in breaking down the stigma surrounding mental health? These are important questions, and in this episode, David and I will navigate the path to peak performance at home, at work, and on the field. Along the way, we'll also talk about how important a growth mindset is for performance and improving our well-being. Finally, we'll arrive at what tools can help us through the boggy quagmire of COVID life and see it through with our wellness intact. Thank you again for listening. Let's get on the highway to well. Welcome back to the Highway to Well. Today, we're talking with David Darris, who is originally from the Twin Cities and thus is an avid hockey player and sports enthusiast and grew up playing hockey and has a love for sports. But he's also a psychologist for Ascension, and he's building a sports psychology practice. And, and that is how our paths crossed, was combining what he's done to help uh, athletes enhance their performance and, and the fact that I'm a high school soccer coach and always wanting to learn more about the psychology of performance and how do we build healthy cultures for kids to perform. So that's how, that's how our paths cross. Um, so first of all, I want to say welcome to the Highway to Well, David. So grateful to have you on talking today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, but I, I want, so I want to start out talking about peak performance and, and I have a little story from this morning that uh, may or may not highlight some of the issues or some of the things that we'll talk about with peak performance. But um, so I was on my way to, to go to meet one of my good friends who we've started this like workout training system. So we have accountability partners and he's a coach. And so he builds a workout for us and we go through and just kind of beat the snot out of each other for, for about an hour or so. And so I was on my way it's, it's this beautiful moment in time for me because I, as if you've listened to any of the other podcasts, I talk a lot about my spiritual and emotional need for exercise. And so while I love the physical output of doing something hard, I also love the mental and spiritual part of it all. So working out is spiritually important. And on my way, so I, I'm also a huge YouTube fan. So on my way, I get in my car and there's a live version of where the streets have no name from a Sydney mm-hmm. concert in 1990. And it's just this beautiful fans are singing along. And so I crank up my speakers and I'm driving, getting really, really pumped for my workout. And then the song ends and it goes into a commercial. So I hit my station chain and I go to this and the next one over is like the covers channel. I mm-hmm. land on the covers channel and it is a cover of Nickelback doing the devil went down to Georgia, which completely ripped my soul apart. And I honestly, for like this brief second thought I, the world was going to end, but the combination of Nickelback taking the devil went down to Georgia and just destroying that song meant that the world's going to, the road in front of me is going to open up and my car is just going to fall through. And I discovered after a few seconds that I was being a little dramatic about that. But I was completely not in the mood to work out anymore. 
by the time I got to the gym. So I had to refocus myself and try to figure out a way to get over the fact that I just saw and heard a few seconds of Nickelback destroying one of the greatest songs of all time. And thus my peak performance may have been diminished, but Mm -hmm. I I want to throw that out there with my little story from this morning, but your work in, in sports and in psychology involves like trying to get people to perform at their peak and thriving in mm-hmm. environments to succeed. So I want, I want you to talk about that. And, and then I want to ask you as we're talking along to be thinking about like, has COVID, has that COVID environment, what has that done maybe for people that you've worked with or what are some of the issues that you're seeing that people are bringing up that either maybe weren't existent in that environment prior to COVID or COVID had, has exacerbated some feelings that has created more, like ambiguity and an uncertainty about a future and that impacts our performance level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's a, um, certainly something I've seen a lot of. Uh, I think the biggest thing that I see is um, specifically as, as it relates to people I'm working with is this grief, intense grief response and noticing that, you know, we're all kind of going through that. Uh, you're seeing that with people being angry, people being sad, people acting like it's not happening. Um, but people really struggling to accept life for what it is right now. And, you know, whether it means having to wear a mask everywhere or having to uh, not go to their favorite restaurants or for athletes, it's, you know, wondering if there's ever going to be a season again. And, you know, what's the purpose of doing all this preparation if, you know, there's not going to be a season or not, you know, the, 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 the ambiguity, the unknown has been what's been causing that's, that extra stress, that extra anxiety, and it has actually deterred some people from actually wanting to, to play. Um, I think we're kind of seeing that at all levels too. I mean, not just, not, not just, I'm sure with high school students, but you know, I'm seeing it with college students and you're seeing it with pros. I mean, I mean, I think just everything has just changed and dealing with that change hasn't been easy for, for anybody. With me, so I, I guess there's a couple of questions that I'd like to, to get into, but I think I wanted I want you to talk about like first of all, so what are the key components when we talk about peak performance that that you work with athletes on or and even working professionals, something that they could translate to their like work environment or other aspects of something that they're doing. So I want to start there and and talk a little bit about that and then and then we can get back I want to loop back around to like so how does that impact the environment that we're currently in too yeah I think what when I work with athletes and really when I work with even the general population um I like I really like to dispel the myth that there's just people that have that are just innately talented and that they don't have to work hard to get what they want like certainly, yes, there are people that pick up on sports maybe a little bit faster or pick up on math or pick up on anything a lot faster. I think what we neglect to understand, though, is how much work that person may have put in on the front end to make that, you know, to make it look like they know what they're doing right off the bat, but really maybe they've harnessed that, that type of mentality uh, beforehand, you know, doing something else. And they kind of understand that, in order for me to get good at something, I have to put the time in. And um, to me, that was such a uh, just 
paradigm shift. I had always grown up thinking like, oh my God, these guys are just so much better, bigger, faster than me that there's just no way that I'm ever going to get to where they are when I think about playing hockey. But I think one thing that I always looked past was how much more work that these guys put in. And uh, it was, I wish I had known that growing up that, you know, it's not, it's, it's practice, the time that is more uh, correlated with greater performance, not just some, some magical skill that you were born with. Yeah. I think, you know, my, my experience with that is a, a lot of it's wrapped around in my, my life as a soccer player and, and as a soccer coach um, for the better part of the past 20, 25 years. And, and I, and I'm constantly, and I think like you, as, as a kid, you grow up and you're always kind of self, your self-awareness level is, is always in flux, especially the mm-hmm. teenager. And so mm-hmm. you're, as an athlete, you're always trying to guess, like, am I, am I really any good? And a lot of us played for coaches who thought that coaching meant destroying in like demeaning you and your mm-hmm. response would be to work harder or play better. And naturally a lot of the better or the, the players that were a little more talented maybe were also the light was shine on them sometimes more, you know, mm-hmm. or, and so it, it, it wasn't, you weren't really, it, it was, it was an environment where you were taught to work, but it was often a response to like uh, failure. Like mm-hmm. I'm doing something wrong. Coach yelled at me. So now I'm going to do some sprints. So yeah. I become a little, little faster maybe you know Mm -hmm. but then and and then you just go through this environment where you're just constantly probably defeating yourself more than you should as an athlete but but you don't really know how to react to that and and respond to that but I also went through that phase too and I saw like a lot of my friends drop out of sports by the time they got into high schools and a lot of it was that emotional response they just I really don't want to be yelled at for a while Mm -hmm. You know, so there were a lot of things in the coaching world that I think impacted that, that mm-hmm. performance part. And then, and I feel like there's the generation of coaches now, like we're all, we're all trying to change that culture. I shouldn't say mm-hmm. we're all trying to, but those of us who are advocates of it are trying to change the culture and talk about mm-hmm. that, the, that dedication, commitment, and, and performance. Those are all things that are tied together and in, in time spent in that activity and time spent doing it. And, mm-hmm. and then we, point out you know so if you if you look at the world soccer i mean you can point to those that are are blessed and, and gifted and that are um physically also stronger faster you know and they succeed but then you also have your when your best soccer player in the world is diminutive and not physically a giant like leo messi it helps mm-hmm. you sell that it isn't all about physical gifts it's about mm-hmm. It's about touches and preparation. And and I love using like Luka Modric as one of my current favorite players. And he embodies mm-hmm. that as well. He's a diminutive player. He's not going to knock anyone over. But he is tactically probably the savviest player, at least I know I'll have this argument with anyone, but I think he's tactically the savviest midfielder in the world right now. Mm-hmm. And so he's always constantly doing the right thing in the right moment and helping his team advance and that was a lot that had a lot to do with Croatia's success mm-hmm. world stage lately. But so so we we we're trying to grow a different kind of environment where it is you you're having players 
um, pay attention to their performance in training and think about all the levels of preparation they need to get to to play the match. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's, that for me is, is a different and a different environment because of the way that we're, we're asking players to respond and do it and mm-hmm. about the, the level of, of our, our treatment of players too, to understand that we as coaches aren't there to demean and correct. We're there mm-hmm. to foster and grow. And that is a paradigm shift too. Mm-hmm. And that's Absolutely. really the role that we find ourselves in today. Mm-hmm. Definitely. I think, um, you know, when you think of like what, when you get to a certain level, like whether it's high school, whether it's college, whether it's professional, most everybody is on the same playing field um, as far as talent goes. Like you don't just get there on accident. And you find that though what separates the elite from the, you know, maybe the average pro is the mindset. You know, they're the ones that always believe that they're capable, you know, when someone says no, they said they're going to do whatever they can to prove that person wrong, or they're going to put in whatever is necessary to get to that next level. And it's, I think people think, oh, well, they're just more talented. It's like, well, you can get to that point if you want to. It's just, what are you willing to sacrifice? Well, and then and we talk about Team sports too is there are variances in, and I and I like to talk about this with any group I'm working with is what are you bringing to make the entirety of this thing better? Mm-hmm. So you're going to be surrounded by people who are differently talented than you, mm-hmm. and your choice is not to look at that as better talent, but differently mm-hmm. talented. And Absolutely. so someone may be an incredible server of a ball or they can finish across but they may not be able to defend worth a lick but Uh you're really good at defending so you carve out your what you're good at and bring that to the table and Uh then that helps the coach and the team kind of Uh build the plan for success it's what you when you realize what your gifts are to bring and that's, and that's something that we're constantly pushing, mm-hmm. pushing players to be mindful of is, and, and that's the hard part with athletes is we're always in a world of constant comparison mm-hmm. and it's hard for anyone to not do that. Like I am not as good as this person. So then I'm just not very good or mm-hmm. that person, oh, they're so much better than me. And mm-hmm. that, that is, a, that's a misguided approach to properly assessing what it is that you're bringing. Okay, mm-hmm. Sure. If someone has an excellent left foot, it may be within the realm of possibility. As much as I work on my left foot, it's not going to be as strong as that person. No. Mm-hmm. However, I am better at whatever. And then you start making these lists of things like, what are you bringing? So I, so I think I want you to talk about that, that self-evaluation and mm-hmm. so, in, and especially as a psychologist, like what, how do you get people to build their, their confidence behind the mask, behind the wall of themselves that they're showing in front of people? What is it inside of them that helps bring the, that out and gets them to a, a healthy place where they are thriving because they're bringing their death? Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's certainly a hard thing to do because I think that, um, you know, especially when you think of like people that have very long standing kind of rooted belief systems based on how they grew up, you know, maybe they parents or they had coaches that really have this kind of like you know, defeating mentality. If you don't do this, then oh, you know, kind of black and white sort of approach. I think for me, it's really trying, you know, using a technique and I use this with, you know, with non-athletes too, it's called motivational interviewing. And it's, you know, learning to, it's, it's kind of digging back to the patient's successes and what, you know, how did they get, for example, like if somebody is a, uh, you know, is a good, is a good student, but maybe isn't the best athlete and trying to understand, okay, so what are some of the things that you do to make yourself a good student? Like, what do you find yourself doing on the weekends? Okay. So you're, and you find yourself studying two to three hours a night. Okay. So now imagine you were a, you know, imagine now how you can apply that same sort of mindset to your sport. You know, is that something that you're capable of because you're capable of, you know, in school, you know, using the evidence to really get them to start to believe, okay, yeah, I am capable of this. I realize that I have to put in maybe a little bit more work, um, you know, or the same level of work that I put into my schooling that I do to my sport. Um, and I think once they start applying that, then you see the confidence build more and more because you, all of a sudden you spark this little, little insight that maybe they didn't have before. You know, maybe they understood what it took to be a good student, but maybe didn't understand that the same rules apply in athletics too or that would apply in learning an instrument or learning pretty much anything. I mean, life is trial and error and it's how much do you put into it is going to determine whether or not it's going to determine your success. And, you know, are you willing to put in the extra little bit of time and are you willing to explore maybe the things that you're not good at, you know, when it comes to athletics or school to make yourself a better athlete or adapt you know, to, um, you know, adapt to your strengths to um, make yourself uh, or adapt to your strengths to counter maybe your weaknesses. Sure. Sure. And, and that ties, that ties neatly in with, you know, Angela Duckworth is, is one of the prominent writers on grit and, oh, yeah. you know, she talks, yeah. And she immediately really hits at, you have to show up. I mean, that mm-hmm. without a doubt, the easiest thing to make yourself successful is to show up. And then there's sub parts of that, you know, and then there's, so how do we, you know, so how do we build up when we do show up the opportunity for us to succeed? And she talked a lot about, you know, that, that is our grit. Like what is it about our, our desire to perform and combination of our interest in whatever we're doing, the routine and the rudimentary and the, repetition of practicing something to be good mm-hmm. at it and then the feeling of and our sense of purpose and and then hopefulness which when that's a, that's i think when i talk about grit like there's part of it that becomes like a technical thing like grit is about your experience in in mm-hmm. you know, moment where you're relying on your best to get through like what mm-hmm. have you done what have you learned in a really troubling or trying or challenging situation that you've, you've figured out your, your problem solving, your practice, your repetition, all these things have come together to help you succeed. Mm-hmm. What I love is to talk about the purpose and the hope. 
And, and mm-hmm. what is it about the the power of grit that makes it make it such an important element to our success? Is mm-hmm. that, that we're hopeful about the outcome? That we have this idea that by working this hard, we're going to get a chance to do whatever it is, win a championship, prove ourselves, mm-hmm. earn uh, a starting spot on the team, or be just mm-hmm. on the team, earn a earn a role in like a varsity team or a college team. Mm-hmm. You know, all those things are, are really important. And so I think that, <clears throat> so when we talk about showing up, you know, what are those elements that you see that are, are so important to mm-hmm. us perfecting in order to provide that opportunity for success? Yeah, good question. The, uh, I think the biggest thing is how, you know, are you willing to, how are you responding to failure? Because I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that you see is when somebody doesn't achieve something right away and they, they find that they're not perfect at something. And I think there's a lot of fear and failure, like people, because it shows that you're not as good at something as you thought you were. And I think the idea behind grit is that are you willing to learn from that failure? And then it's the grit, the ones that are considered, I guess, more gritty are the ones that come back and say, you know what, I didn't get it the first time, but I'm going to get it a second time. And if I'm not going to get it the second time, I'm going to get it the third time. And it's those people that have just that, that patience. And they, they see themselves as being more or less, I guess, um, they value the experience of getting to that achievement and not just the achievement itself. Um, there's this, uh, I just, I'm reading this book called The Confidence Gap, and he talks a lot about, the author talks a lot about how it's so important to appreciate each step along the way and see that as just a part of the bigger picture, as a part of the achievement. Um, and he used an example of an individual who is climbing up a mountain is only solely focused on being at the top, but not recognizing and appreciating what is going into getting to the top. The, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, the hardships along the way and being, being able to understand and appreciate and be grateful for the experience too, because, you know, sometimes we don't achieve what we'd like to do, but if we can appreciate each step along the way, we kind of see that as a little achievement in itself. And, you know, those are the grittier people, ones that, again, they see the value in each step. They're the ones that show up. They're the ones that aren't deterred by failure. Um, you know, I, I use this example with your, uh, with your soccer team and that, you know, learning is about trial and error. And if babies adopted the mindset uh, that a lot of us have about failure and, you know, not being gritty about, uh, uh, about learning and understanding that it's a process, not just uh, you get it the first time, you know, babies wouldn't walk if they had our mindset. You know, when you learn to walk, when you learn to talk, it's, it's a difficult thing. You know, you, you have your bumps and your bruises along the way, but yet, you know, the baby keeps getting back up. Now, if we weren't, if we didn't, if we didn't have that approach to walking, we'd all be sitting down. And um, I think it's just, again, yeah, people just uh, sometimes forget that, you know, failure is a part of life and it doesn't define who you are. Well, I think, and I'll throw something out there. This, this is, and I, and when I've talked with other coaches, and not just specifically sport coaches, but also people mm-hmm. who are like in the in the personal training and personal coaching field too, is is there is there a problem that we've created 
and you're well tuned into youth sports environment and even, you know, college and professional sports too, but have we done a disservice to ourselves because we've created most of our rewards on outcomes of events? And what I mean by that is in youth soccer, we've increased the amount of tournaments, games, leagues, mm-hmm. multiple tournaments now for awarding a champion of some kind. And mm-hmm. players end up playing an incredible amount of games versus the amount that they're actually training. So ratio of training to performance is especially here in the United States, and this is like a common problem we've talked about for ages in in youth soccer and in European models, a lot of them are less competition-based and more training-based. And Mm -hmm. well, I mean, the results are sometimes clear that we're, we're a little behind in the, in the, in in the, in performance, even though our kids are actually performing more games than Mm -hmm. some say kids that are in Iceland or Portugal or Spain, you know, Mm -hmm. um, but here, and this is, this is something we talk about all the time, is, and what you just talked about was rewarding the process. And I, being mm-hmm. a coach, I'm a firm believer in the process. And I've spent my life also outside of soccer, just for my own personal well-being, is, is to throw myself into the forest of process and go through 40 days of, of pain and suffering to learn something about what I can do. Mm-hmm. Because the only way that you can do that is by trying to do something, and then you go see if you can do it. Mm-hmm. And so we, we perform and we, we want, our, we want our, our young athletes to perform and yet we pile on so many games that we don't spend enough time in the process and in the training and the games themselves become teachers, but those games also have results that have a score and can sometimes mm-hmm. uh, be more of a detriment to that growth process than what we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the, I know for when I was playing sports growing up, the mindset I always have was, again, kind of jumping back uh, to something I said a little bit earlier is just, you know, this idea that, that somebody was just, you know, if they skated faster than I did, they were more talented. If they were bigger than me, they were more intimidating, they were a better hockey player. And so what I would do is I would always, you know, I had what was called a fixed mindset. It's a book, it's a concept that was, uh, uh, created by this uh, woman named uh, Carol Dweck. Um, and she talks a lot about how, you know, from a young age, so many of us are indoctrinated this idea that, you know, people that are just better at something are, you know, have, you know, people who think that way have the, like I said, that fixed approach. Like there's a limit to what they can do and that's it. Um, whereas, what she contests is that if we were to promote this idea of the growth mindset, we encourage people to see those losses or see those times that we didn't succeed as growth moments. Okay, so how did, you know, what did I learn in this situation? What can I do differently? You know, and I think when you do play a lot of those games, it's like, I wonder if there would be a way of, you know, maybe see it as you know, opportunities for growth if you don't win the championship or if you, you know, you lose a game or you give up a goal or, and, you know, using that time to using, you you can use it as practice, I guess, in a way of stating that, okay, so how are you going to mentally respond to this game? You didn't win. So what's your response to it? Do you feel like you are capable of doing more and having that kind of being a, I guess, maybe a mental training moment. So maybe you can't go over the, go over the, um, 
I guess the you know the physical aspects of redoing it, but learning how to how to train the mind that you know to be stronger, you know, and to let or tougher, I guess, to respond to those moments that are going to require that type of response. You know, especially knowing that you got more games to play or something. Because um, yeah, that is the amount of games I remember playing as a kid compared to the number of practices just was way skewed in competition. And yeah, I definitely. Yeah, it's, it's one of those, it's an odd, it's an odd dilemma sometimes because you absolutely want the game to be significant teachers of what it is that you've been mm-hmm. preparing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, but then I mean, you find yourself in an environment where it's the games are the only results that just kind of grab the attention. They're like the shiny mm-hmm. objects of everything. Yeah. And you're over here on the sideline talking about the preparation and the process mm-hmm. and trying to continue to drive that point home. It can create this, this dynamic or this dichotomy of, of uh, what it is that's most important. And, and so mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a fight sometimes to, to get that mm-hmm. right approach so that you're balancing the value of the competition versus the value mm-hmm. of the training versus, you know, like the value of the overall experience. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's layered in that. It's a complex mm-hmm. layer there. I will say, like, once you get to the college level, and maybe you can comment on this, too, having played, um, I worked um, as a writer for the uh, Minnesota Gopher football team and would often go to their practices and was just surprised, like, how much they took from practices. It was constant teaching moments. um, Specifically, when I'd watched their new coach, P.J. Fleck, I mean, he just – he had eyes and ears everywhere and gave the players the immediate feedback, let them know if they screwed up, let them know if they didn't do something the way you wanted it or let them know. And I, I suppose probably a lot of coaches were like that, but he really like saw practices like the ultimate way of teaching, not using the games as like the teacher as you know, for a lot of youth athletes. I think in college, you really see like them take it to that next level and they understand the value of repetition and practice before you get into a game scenario, because if you're just tossing that game scenario and not know what you're doing, and I think that was really evident this year because I don't think any teams really had a lot of time to prep for the season where, you know, you saw a lot of injuries, you saw teams underperform, you saw all this. Um, you just saw that value of, you know, having a spring practice and fall practice season. I mean, like dedicating that much time before, you know, the actual gameplay started. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think as a college coach that you're you're there's some things that are working a little bit more to your advantage in that in that collective environment. You know, you're you're usually in in a situation where your variance of commitment is much smaller than when you're coaching at like a high school or even a club, mm-hmm. depending upon the club environment that you're in. So there's some clubs that are highly selective. So all the players are within like mm-hmm. a 0.01 difference of opinion about commitment. I mean, they're all pretty much bought in, but mm-hmm. in your average, you know, high school environment, you have competing interests of players and it's, and it, mm-hmm. it is a natural part of the high school environment. This is a spoke mm-hmm. on their educational frame. Like in their wheel of, of life, this is one spoke of what they're doing. They may be in performance, mm-hmm. uh, like in band or theater. They may be having, they may have tests that are incredibly hard. Mm-hmm. 
college students do too, but if you've made the decision to play in college, it usually means that you've, you've passed a level, a commitment level that you're, mm-hmm. you're in. And, and college coaches are, are in a different situation too where they can kind of pick and choose the players that they want to keep around, you know? And so mm-hmm. you have that environment. Plus like PJ Fleck, college football is fortunate. They have a fewer amount of games and more practice time. So mm-hmm. you get to see the benefits of that, you know, as Absolutely. like for us at the high school, college, you know, at the high school soccer level, we're trying to pack in like 20, 20 something games over a 10 week period. That's, that, yeah, just, uh, that doesn't really create a lot of process. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, yeah. that's where you have to, you have to learn and teach your players to learn how to grow in a game situation, which is really, it, it provides a, a nice, a beautiful reward for participation, you know, but there are, there are differences in those, in those culture and mm-hmm. those dynamics that, that can, um, you have to think about as you're preparing your players. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, and I think of it like just, you can really using that as like, a way to prepare them. Like, you know, you're going to be learning a lot of your skills on the fly and, you know, having them using the games as teaching moments may not be the most convenient thing. Like I think everyone would want the opportunities for more repetition, but I guess sometimes you got to play with what you're given. Yeah. Yeah. And that's where I always talk to my guys about being creative problem solvers. And that's where, mm-hmm. I know we talked about in your presentation is a team, you know, my mantra being improvise, adapt, overcome. Mm-hmm. That is, that is key. That is central to how I view what it is that we try to do. So, mm-hmm. and soccer is a fluid sport that demands you making changes on the fly a lot of the time. Like it's a game that's going to be constantly breaking down and it's filled with mistakes. So the team that responds most um, mm-hmm. successfully to a mistake is usually the team that wins. Absolutely. So, so you have to teach your players to be that way, which is why I'm, I'm completely biased but that's why I think it's the most beautiful sport in the world too, mm-hmm. because of, of what it demands of, of every player in every moment. Um, Absolutely. That's one of those issues. Well, and I think of, you know, you say that, you know, you don't have a ton of practices and you're learning a lot from games. It's like, I think it really, then, you know, it's the players that kind of figure out like, okay, so if I need to work on something, I might have to do it on my own outside of the allotted practice time. And I find that the ones that do that tend to be the ones that are more successful. Yeah. Uh, they're the ones that are putting in the reps after school or they're the ones, you know, practicing their corner kicks or they're, um, they're the ones that are just, you know, you know, for, they're the goalies that take, you know, practice every single day and, you know, get, shot, you know, get the ball shot at them, what, hundred times a day or something like that. Sure. Um, I know when I did my research for my dissertation, I was really surprised because I actually thought something, you know, there was a way to, you know, expedite peak performance in, uh, with fighters. And there wasn't. The thing that I found out was that it was the people that had been uh, uh, practicing martial arts for years that were more successful. It was the people that are putting in you know, 20, 30 hours a week that were seeing more success. And I thought, you know, my old coworker, Tom, used to always joke with me, uh, you know, Dave, you spent two years of your life doing this work only to find out that practice makes perfect. <laughs> and I think there was such, but it was such a great thing for me to realize just personally that, you know, things just aren't given to you. You have to earn them. And that was just such great personal knowledge that I gained, not to say, I mean, I always kind of knew it, 
But still, even at that time when I was writing my dissertation, I always thought, oh, man, like, well, these people are just more talented than I am at, at school or something. And I was like, no, like the people that are doing really well are the ones that are putting in the extra time. And it was good because it helped me challenge those original expectations that I'd had growing up. Mm-hmm. And um, I started to, I started to appreciate that more. And, you know, when, especially when I started to make the move from, uh, clin- you know, clinical work to try to do more sports psych work, I found myself, you know, just being, you know, taking a whole different approach um, as far as like, you know, getting up early if I have to read, you know, you know, if there's a book I want to read or getting up early to work out, you know, if I want to get my workout in on top of all the other work I want to do, it's, you know, it's adapting my life to make sure that I accomplish what I accomplish and recognizing that, you know, the ones that are going to be successful are the ones that are doing those exact things, getting up early, going to bed early if you need to, or, you know, carving out time, you know, during the day you know, when you have downtime or if like I have, you know, if a patient doesn't show up, you know, taking that time to, you know, finish up my paperwork so I can get to my, get to my reading or get to creating a curriculum or get to whatever I want to do to be successful in this field. It's just, it was so much different than how I grew up. I always thought like, you know, the talented people just had it easier. And it was, you know, it was certainly a shock when I got those results. I was like, man, here, I thought I could just, you know, learn how to be a more mindful person and that would make me a better athlete. Nope. <laughs> nope. It's the, uh, it's just, it's grinding. <laughs> that's what, that's what makes you a better athlete. That's what makes you a better performer. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that that's the lesson that it's just something you have to keep repeating because it's really, it's, it's kind of like in a way that we're, we're sometimes jealous of those who are really good at something. And so we want to find an excuse and to say, well, you're just better at that. Like you have a gift and you, Uh you're just blessed. You're physically more able or more capable. You're um, whatever, whatever it might be. So we look at like the great ones as, as kind of diminishing the work that sometimes that they Uh make. But then I had, I had really, I had a great opportunity when, so when I was a youth soccer player, I grew up playing with a kid named Joe Max Moore who ended up making it to the U S national team and had played um, professionally in England. And early on, like, I think probably prior to that, I thought the same thing. I thought the kids that were good were just good. And then I hoped I was one of them. Like I tried, but I just, I kind of dismissed the work that it took. But Mm -hmm. when I was around him and our, and our coach, so our coach was a, a Yugoslavian um, professional player who came over to the States and then stayed and started coaching. And every, like, I think about every day I'd show up to practice, they, they had already been practicing for like an hour or two hours together, or they would stay after, or the, or I would show up, my dad would bring me to one of those other practices. And it ended up kind of being a daily thing where there was, you, you, I was watching the work that he was putting in mm-hmm. and the commitment that it took and everything else, not just the soccer training, but he was like one of the first, first friends of mine that I saw doing strength training and, and doing other work outside of just playing or mm-hmm. running while you're playing or doing sprints. Like 
like still within the framework of a practice session that I saw and I, and then I saw the output of that and saw someone achieving greatness. Yes, because they were talented. Yes, they had a gift, but yes, they absolutely worked hard. And so that, mm -hmm. so I, I, that gave me confidence, you know, as a young athlete to, to mm -hmm. put in the hours. And so that was part of training. It, it, that, that the, like that's a lesson that's really it's a complicated one when you when you have players who just don't understand the training element and and mm -hmm. so you kind of push trying to put them and try to find that motivational button in them to say that's open you know open the gate to success is practice it really is Absolutely. there's no replacement for it there's no mm -hmm. way around it it's not the sexiest way to get things done but when you learn to love it, you fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. And it really and then it doesn't become that. practice anymore. No. Then it's like you get to do what you love full time. Exactly. And, and I have actually found that with sports psychology is that I love this so much that it doesn't feel like work. Like I love learning about, you know, and understanding about how people learn because not only has it been personally enriching for me, but it's, I love this topic. And it's like, I, I, I could do this for the, you know, I could do this for the rest of my life and had not have it feel like a day of work. And, you know, part of it is I grew up love, you know, with watching sports. And I, I had realized early on that maybe I wasn't going to be a professional athlete, but I knew I'd always wanted to be involved in it somehow. And, and here I am, it's like, I'm on the cusp of that and it's awesome. Like I, you know, I certainly value the, you know, being able to work with your team because it's, it's, you know, it's fulfilling something that I've, you know, I've worked so hard for and, you know, seeing it happen has been truly remarkable because it makes me just appreciate, you know, all the little things I had to do along the way. And, um, you know, not being afraid to, I think the other thing that gets undersold is just putting yourself out there um, and being willing to, you know, and being willing to, to to try new things as a way to improve your um, to improve your uh, to improve your sport, improve your practice, whatever it may be, whatever you love to do, it's you know taking advantage of opportunities when they're presented to you. Um, I actually just read because um, I'm a I, I follow college recruiting and football very very passionately, and I was reading this story about this kid who he committed to the university of Minnesota to play football. And it talked about him taking ballet to improve his footwork. And I, I was like, it took me a second to think like, well, why is somebody taking it? And it was like, if you think of the balance and the footwork that goes into being a, a dancer, a ballet dancer, it's like, I thought that was such a unique way of, you know, taking, like taking advantage of opportunity as they come and, you know, being willing to try something new or try something that other people aren't doing to make yourself a better athlete or to make yourself just, you know, a better overall performer. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And if there's something, so, and I, I want to segue to something I want to ask you about. Mm -hmm. So, and, and this is something that I think bridges this area between the athletes that you might work with and then, you know, and, and then people are not athletes, but mm -hmm. on the, so in the big picture of, we start talking about performance and 
growth mindsets and the parts of our mental well-being that are expected to help us improve our performance. One of the areas that I've been wanting to focus on and been and I've been working with, you know, um, uh, kind of building some strategies to help improve and and one and when we start talking about mental health, so this is where I want to talk about mental health and well-being mm-hmm. and what are we what are we putting in that bucket of things that we should be talking about with our athletes because what i see is is the work of like yourself and and others who talk about you know growth mindset and performance-based metrics and then you have like your nutrition your fitness and areas that we're focusing on for our wellness for our for our kids but what i think and I want to throw this out there to you to get your thoughts on, but I think that really like the next quantum leap for us as a profession of coaches and people who are inspired by sports and performance of, and what sports can do for people and change their lives and all those things, all the reasons why we love sports mm-hmm. and is to talk about is to expand that mental health and mental well-being to include, um, a lot larger arena of, of issues that that we can help build resources and kind of um, strategies and kind of like grow out our tentacles to cover these bases, including like mm-hmm. sexual harassment, discrimination, and relationship abuse and um, bullying, which has obviously been a, a large topic and a lot of um, hazing and other incidences you know, that have happened across the world of sports have helped shine a light there, but also talk about like food security and domestic issues at homes. And that, you know, like I, I really, I love that. And, you know, Kevin Love was one of the, one of the first NBA athletes to really talk about mental health. And over the summer, Dak Prescott talked a lot about mental health. And we see mental health at the forefront of athletes and talking about their, how it, how they get help and what they need to help them to do what they do. What I, what I worry about is how can we, how can we extend that message to like the kids that are in rural communities that are like 13 and 14 who play for a team and show up, but they may not have the equipment to play or they are from an abusive home, or they may not even have had enough food to come train. And then we're expecting them to come perform at our practice. So I, I, I don't know to what degree you have any, any ideas about that, but I think when we've been working and talking with others, you know, about this expansion of our ideas about mental well-being to include the performance part, but also include like this really well-being part of our lives that impact our ability to be an athlete too. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I, you know, the part I really liked is when he highlighted those, you know, bigger athletes coming out and talking about, um, like Kevin Love, uh, Dak Prescott, uh, another big one was Brandon Marshall mm-hmm. actually came out and talked about his, you know, having a pretty severe diagnosis, um, of, uh, what's known as borderline personality disorder. And I think what it did was it helped, it helped take away this sense of infallibility that we always assume athletes have. Um, and I think what they really did well was they, they said, you know, you can be a big, strong man and a big, strong athlete, uh, 
because nobody, you know, again, nobody's tougher than a guy like Kevin Love, who's six foot 11, weighs 200, and, I don't know how, 240 pounds, let's say, or, you know, Dak Prescott or Brandon Marshall playing football, taking hits, you know, nobody, none of those guys, you know, nobody in the world would say that they're not tough people. But I think what it did was created this space of, you know, and this uh, created this acceptance of vulnerability that we are, we all feel whether, whether or not we like to admit it or acknowledge it, we all feel something, you know, whether it's sadness, whether it's anxiety, whether it's uh, depression, whether it's anger, we all feel that. And unfortunately, I think for a long time, we saw mental health as something to be ashamed of, to be, to hide because it created this sense of vulnerability that people weren't necessarily comfortable with. And once those guys have the courage to come out and say, you know what, I felt this a lot. I, I, you know, Kevin Love talked about having panic attacks and not understanding really why it was happening and being afraid to tell people and hiding it for so long. I mean, it's, it's because I think, I think our culture specifically in the United States, we don't, we see mental health as, uh, or there's been the stereotype that mental health creates this is, you know, if you go see a counselor, it's weakness. And it's like, to me, that's just so sad because we all feel something. <laughs> we've all felt, we've all cried. I mean, if anyone says they haven't cried, I, I like to kindly point out that you were born, right? You were a baby. I mean, uh, I mean, unless you're born, I mean, uh, unless, you know, God forbid there were other things that happened, but most babies are born with a sense of fear. So what do they do? They cry. We've all felt that at some point in our life. And we have to acknowledge that. And I think once people can acknowledge that they feel and they understand that other people feel the same way, they don't feel as isolated. They feel like they can talk about it more readily. And I think when coaches and uh, teachers and um, other players, you know, ones that maybe have are more comfortable when they can create that space for their team or their teammates or other friends and or family members, it people don't feel that isolated. People feel like they have somebody they can turn to. And, you know, one thing that I like to do when I do a presentation is talk about how, yes, these skills might help with those on-field anxieties, things like that. But if you're finding that these aren't enough, you know, I encourage you to reach out to a mental health professional. I encourage you to talk to somebody because it's not a weakness to come in. If, if anything, it's a strength to say, you know what, I'm not okay and I need some help. Uh, it's so important to do that because if you're not, then then you're not necessarily creating the space. And I think some of it though, is not necessarily, maybe the coaches were never exposed to that, you know, that sort of thinking that, or understanding that creating that space can be so powerful uh, and, or just creating a, you know, creating an opportunity is so important. Yeah. I think the, the whole concept of creating safe space, then it is a pathway that we're, I think we're advancing in the coaching field of being able mm-hmm. to do that better. Absolutely. I think the the resources are growing. I think the stigmas is, is getting better for us to mm-hmm. knock it down. And that's Absolutely. been led by a lot of great leaders. And I think that just continues to be a conversation for us to try to grow because I want to see, you know, those kids in that play for a soccer club in Central Wisconsin have the same resources that, mm-hmm. you know, LeBron James would yeah, to talk to someone, you know, so I think that's, that's the step that we're going, I, I hope that's, that's where we're headed and mm-hmm. kind of ties, so that, 
So this kind of ties us back in this big loop going back to, I want to, I, I, there's a, some things about the lasting fingerprint that COVID will have, you know, that what, what we're, what we're learning about ourselves and what we need or what we can access for ourselves to grow and, and change and be uh, responsive, resilient, gritty, um, flexible and dynamic in a world that kind of demands that where we're uncertain about the future, where there are a lot of mm -hmm. things that are in flux. And so as a, and so as a, as a psychologist in your field and in your training, I, I, and we're getting towards the end of the year of a difficult year and it's been challenging and layered with socio-political, socio-economic concern and larger issues that have brought a lot of different things to the forefront for us to be thinking about. And also mm -hmm. personally, there's been a lot of, and, and I've talked with a lot of people in doing on the podcast over this past year about pivoting your, your, your life to work within the framework of what this COVID life has been like. And, and then what have we learned about it? What have we learned about ourselves? What have we learned that we can apply for the future? So uh -huh. I feel like we're at a threshold of, and I know we were talking before the podcast started about, I feel like this has been the most significant year in since Y2K that uh -huh. in, at least in my like mindset of, of just uh, the socio-political culture and everything around us changing and that we're desperately looking for 2021 to be different and better. Mm -hmm. So yeah. what tools, like what do we, what is it that we can use to really help us thrive moving forward into, into the next year? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think one of the things, and I hear that in, and that you're not just saying from a political level is that we need to understand that compromise shouldn't be a scary thing that we need. If we're going to get through this year, or get through this, you know, unprecedented COVID experience together. It's like we need to be able to come together. We need to hear each other out, and we can't shut the door on people that maybe don't agree with us. And we have to really meet each other where we're at. Um, the other thing is is trying to find some sense of hope that, or gratitude, or something that will help us. Just whether it serves as merely a distraction. Oh, I know one thing that has helped me throughout this process is recognizing that um, how lucky um, I am to be in a time where we're able to develop a vaccination uh, for you know a really serious virus in less than a year, possibly. No, yeah, in less than a year because they're already dispersing it. And having the technology to be able to do things like a podcast, stay connected with people and get and uh, you know, spread a message of you know hope and understanding out to people, but also just staying connected. Period with people like friends and family. I mean, I live, I live, granted, only three, four hours away from my my family uh, in Minnesota, but I haven't seen them that much throughout this process. And I think having the access to things like FaceTime and the phone, and or sorry, and uh, just phone calls and. Um, zoom and everything like that that has to me been such a thing to be grateful for that i imagine being back in like the um you know the early 1900s and the spanish flu came out and thinking about how isolated they must have felt during that time and maybe 
you know, for somebody who lived, you know, four, three, four hours away would never have the same accessibility that I would, you know, that we have now to friends and family across the country. Uh, I mean, I think the big thing is, is, you know, finding ways to be grateful and it's not easy. Uh, and I definitely am imperfect in that sense because I've found myself getting very frustrated with this whole experience and wishing that life could be a little bit different. But I think the thing is, is that the ones that accept and kind of adapt to the change are the ones that tend to be the ones that have less trouble dealing with uh, the changes that have come about. And uh, I know, I know right now with, I remember when the when COVID first happened, I started working with the. Uh, I did a presentation for the UW Stevens Point uh, baseball team, and I worked with a local organization called Velocity Sports. And I was slated to do more presentations with them after my initial one with the baseball team. And then COVID hit, and boom, everything just was out the window. And I remember feeling so despondent about that, like thinking, like, man, how am I going to get this going? But really, what it required me to do is just get creative. Like you had to, you know, make, you know, maintain the contacts with people, but also put myself out there, you know, read the, you know, use an opportunity to become more familiar with the literature. Um, it just, it, yeah, I don't know. I guess it's really, it's a, it's a, it's a question I could probably go on and on about, but I think it's been really just trying to, you know, make the best of a bad situation in any way I can and recognizing that there are going to be those times that are going to, be awful and suck and realizing that it's okay to have those moments. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think it's all given us a license to agree that things might just suck and Mm -hmm. and to not let that derail us rather than see that as part of just a normal, Mm -hmm. in a way, like a normal way of going through a process of life and change. And so, Mm -hmm. um, and I, you know, I've seen quite a bit about, toxic positivity and about overlooking the toughness of this when the toughness is really what helps us get through. And like you said, it helps us learn to maybe change some of the ways that we're doing things. So I, mm-hmm. I appreciate that perspective greatly. And yeah, yeah, I just want to say thank you for sharing all of these thoughts and, um, working through all these issues together here today yeah well thanks for bringing me on i was very surprised when he asked me and i really appreciate the opportunity well and we'll we'll have to i know previously we were talking about music we both have mm-hmm. discovered we have a fond appreciation for the greatest band ever the replacements and so um, yeah. i might i might need to have you come on and we can just talk about music for a while that sounds fantastic that sounds great. So thank you again, David. And yeah. we'll we'll talk again soon. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. <laughs>